0: watermelon (laughs) you remember the code word watermelon rhubarb Mm mm-hmm like a time of year it is that watermelon rhubarb time of year really
1: yeah yeah uh i'm using my new microphone setup sounds spectacular does it really yeah just mocking me not at
0: all no it sounds like as like more clear than the direct uh recordings you sent me the last two weeks
1: oh interesting all right i'm still direct recording so we'll see if that matters
0: yeah. Okay. So this week we're going to get right to it because 55 minutes is our goal.
1: I feel like we should just write some code that just stops the recording. <laughs> 55 minutes. <laughs>
0: just abruptly stop like we abruptly start. Exactly. Okay. Uh, you suggested a good topic I think we should kick off with, which is, what did you call it? Enduring le- legacy code?
1: I think I said overcoming. But okay. <laughs> that might be a little overdramatic. dramatic. <laughs>
0: uh let's get to it so was your week full of overcoming legacy code
1: um so in its in its own way so uh when i joined the platform team i joined the team with the intention of working on webhooks um but the, the there was no one really working on that portion of the code actively anymore um everyone had sort of moved on to their own things and uh we're, were just sort of being caretakers for the code base so i was like oh that sounds interesting i'll totally do that so i jumped over did that um for about a year and a half or so, uh, and then, uh, collectively the team sort of realized that it would be better if we focused on a, uh, you know, a, or work together rather as a, as an entire team instead of sort of as a web hook subsection and then an API subsection and whatever. Quick background so
0: question for those sure. that are unfamiliar. Uh, so the, the web hooks at GitHub include what sorts of things that people may or may not be familiar with.
1: Sure. So it's basically if you have a continuous integration server or you get notifications in chat, um, nine times out of ten, that's coming from a webhook. Basically, uh, an event happens on GitHub.com, and we send a HTTP server a post with some payload information about that event, basically. Gotcha.
0: Um, So carry on.
1: So since we've been working together as a single team, essentially the webhooks have just sort of been... Um, chugging along on its own um, there 's a service called Hookshot uh, that Rick Olson wrote, and uh, that 's this Ruby service that basically sends the web hooks on to the third party servers and that hasn 't really had a ton of attention um, you know in the past uh, maybe two years or so, just sort of you know upkeep and a couple of changes as scale happens and whatnot and so where this overcoming legacy has happened is is we 've sort of gotten to the point where Kyle Daigle is the only dude that knows uh, What's going on with the hook with the hookshot service? Now, are you the, um, like
0: are you the the hookshot guy? Would people know yeah. you as that?
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, um, and so you know the team has had it as a priority to you know sort of get more people familiar with hookshot, which makes total sense. It's just that the barrier to entry is relatively high. Um, you know, I took it on as probably what would be considered a legacy code base in Ruby land, um, and so. You know, there's a lot of things that are that were you know odd back then and wasn't worth changing, um, and so you know we've added documentation and graphs and alerts and all kinds of good stuff since then. But at the same time, you know, this week uh, I think it was Thursday, it might have been Friday. I had my three teammates basically all asking me questions about hooks and hookshot stuff because everyone was sort of taking on one task to try and learn like one tiny subsection of things. Um, and it made me really wonder like, you know, how to avoid those scenarios when you did not have control over building the initial system, right? Because I think it's an easy question when... Uh, maybe not, though. I don't know. It, it, it's a lot easier when you built the initial system, right? Because it's... you could just I say, wonder... Oh, I document these things or whatever. Well, that's why I kind of stopped myself. Like, I don't know that I've ever been in that scenario where that's actually been true. You know, where writing the initial system has, you know, has stopped the pain and bringing on new people.
0: I mean, if you come in as a second party to a project is my take at least, I think in a lot of ways, it's easier to document it in the way that's helpful to someone new to the project, because you don't have all, you don't really have any background um, that would cause you to sort of imagine that what's, uh, obvious to you would be obvious to others. I mean, I guess everyone brings that to the party to some degree, but someone new, I think would be, would be more, uh, capable of pretending that they were, uh, an average new person than with the person that authored it, who is like sort of long since lost beginner's mind. Although, You know, I mean, a lot of people think you can get back to beginner's mind sort of in an instant, just like you can lose it in an instant. So, you know, maybe it just depends on the person in the circumstance.
1: Yeah, and I think think with that whole thing, like, you know, uh, document things when you're a beginner or whatever, or try and empathize or whatever with beginners, I think is great. But I think at the same time, you know, everyone is coming to a problem like this from a different background Um, you know this is a Ruby project which immediately loses the like warm and fuzzies of Rails where at least you kind of know you know where things are going and MVC and oh the monkey patches go here like that sort of thing Um, so that's a big part the other part of this project in particular is that it has a lot of operational um, concerns you know like how do you start these services? How do the services all talk to each other? Like it's not just a Ruby web app or rails web app where it's, you know, script server and have a good day sort of thing.
0: Way bigger um, deal in my experience than is the rest of it. In other words, like the, the hurdles of having teammates get used to dealing with a complicated op setup is a big mountain.
1: Yeah. One that I entirely underestimated because I don't think I have very, um, much in the way of operation skills, you know? Um, We we need
0: a modesty horn.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that's how... I guess what I'm trying to say is that's how I would normally describe myself. But, like, functionally, like, I obviously do. Like, I have enough that, you know, I am both valuable and dangerous probably um and so when it came to getting going and just being like oh yeah no just start this up and this is how you go to this box and just run this command like you know that was more complex than um i anticipated and obviously i was sort of leaving things out because i thought that they were obvious or whatever which is probably the first you know the first major mistake or whatnot so
0: so give me um, a sense of scale for hookshot if that's like permitted like so how big of a library are we talking about is this you know smaller than a bread box bigger than a house
1: <laughs> that's so great i have never heard that before in my life no oh, really yeah i no. that, that,
0: that, i am not original i think that's such an old like <laughs> quote that it's maybe getting new again. It's like bell bottoms
1: that's so great um so I'm trying to see if I can get a quick line count on it. I mean, it's not it's not an entirely small project. It's, uh, but it, I wouldn't call it very large either. I mean, it's 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 got an adapter pattern sort of built into it because we need to store hook logs differently in the GitHub Enterprise product than we do in production. And so, if you imagine there's like three or four sort of um, systems, you know, or like areas of responsibility mm-hmm. within it, you know, we have to receive a hook, we then have to you know store it, queue it pull it back off the queue, try and deliver it and then store the result. There's sort of four systems there and each one of those can have a plug and play sort of adapter. And so that is the major piece of complexity. So, I mean, I, it's not one of those projects where you sort of sit down and go, Oh yeah, no, this this calls this and this calls that because it's calling generic objects all over the place. But the
0: interface is relatively clean and sort of straightforward to reason about.
1: I, I, I think so. But this is where I, it starts to fall apart for a legacy project, right? Because I have been working in it for, you know, a year or two. Mm-hmm. When was I, most I, of it written? How long ago? Oh, man. Four years ago, maybe? Yeah. And yeah. so it's 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 a little bit tricky, you know, because it's uh, there's also a lot of external systems, right? We have a queuing system that's not, like, for free. Like, it's not rescue, you know? I mean, it's you're actually calling queuing commands and popping things off of kestrel and whatnot and so uh you know there's like another piece of external knowledge needed there and so i mean it, it's it's kind of interesting i find and i was talking to some of my coworkers about this a couple months ago i find myself kind of i always gravitate towards these projects for some reason um you know, in previous jobs. uh, Now,
0: now when you say these projects, what do you mean?
1: The legacy systems that have a a low maintainership. Yeah. Um, Well, I think that makes
0: sense. I mean, it's a place you can add that you can impact things. I would think.
1: Yeah, totally. It's the, the, the trouble I think that I have um, with it is how to adequately um, uh, advocate, you know, for that system in its value, maybe, you know, uh, because you're the only person potentially that knows actually, like, how the system works or whatever. So, you know, for most projects... If you could you're go really,
0: on a long vacation.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, really, i like, like, or have some sort of absence. That seems like it gets the job done.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 more, it's... I guess what I'm trying to say is it's less, it's less, uh it's less bus factor at first and more, you know, if you can't just you know, be allowed to work on this thing, uh, you know, sort of at your own, uh, volition or whatever, if you need to go, okay, Hey, this is the problem that's happening. This is the, you know, this is the, um, what I think the major issue is and how it's impacting customers. And this is what I think the general amount of work is to get this fixed or whatever. Right. In most of my work, I have one or two other people that know the system well enough to be like, yeah, that makes sense. Or eh, I don't really know, or whatever. But if you're the the person, then you're always sort of advocating to you know people who don't have the experience with the system. Um, I find that to be another interesting sort of component. Uh, depending on how high touch or how coupled the the legacy project is to the overall system. And um, in, I find in this case, pretty it's pretty coupled, coupled
0: right? Oh, I mean, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, if hooks go down, I mean, it's like. Our, the support staff, we have to status, right? Which is like a big no-no. So I would think that the anxiety so far, I'm imagining myself
0: on the GitHub team. I would think the anxiety around hooks going down would be like equivalent to like, maybe it's just under like a security breach. Obviously, that's a bigger deal because that like, you know, gets the big press and has potentially massive ramifications for companies. So that's a bigger deal. But hooks going down is like a much bigger deal than most bugs that would happen in the web app, I would think outside of data loss maybe data loss is a bigger deal but to some degree webhooks are data loss yeah uh, at least they could be experienced that way so if i was a team member i could i could imagine the anxiety level around changing that app being extremely high um is that the case
1: um for new people um i i don't think i think i think the the website going down is is much more um you know, d- dangerous than webhooks. I mean, I, I don't have stats on exactly like how many repositories have a webhook attached to them or anything like that. But like, I mean, it's if the website goes down and the web UI goes down, or if Git goes down, that would be far worse than yeah, right. Like, you know, webhooks not being delivered. But but regardless, I mean, everyone acknowledges that you know having Kyle be the person to call when operations can't get it going on their own or fix whatever the problem is. Um, We have a lot of smart people that can do that stuff, but it's just, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's still one of those things that's unideal. (laughs) Um, so what are are your
0: takeaways? You've been at this for a a while now. Uh, if, uh, you were to get charged with maintaining a new one of these sort of, you know, one man knows it, uh, or one woman knows it, uh, legacy projects that are sort of integral to the operations, but not in everyone's face, therefore maybe easy to forget. Uh, how would you go from like day one to you've got things under control and you don't feel like, you know, everything's at risk anymore. What's your action plan?
1: So, I mean, if I could go back in time, if I could turn back time, as they say, (laughs) please, please do it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I know you can, (laughs) no, I'm good. So, (laughs) um, I think having in, um, we call them ombuds at GitHub, but basically, what I would probably do is go to someone on the platform team, all right? Someone who's close to the team, close to the project, but not necessarily attached to it, and go to someone in operations or infrastructure, and get sort of two, um, like ombuds, two people who are willing to sort of advocate, review code, understand the system, and while they may not have the time or the availability or um, the option of actively working on the system, having two more sets of eyes that can actively try to keep the flow of information in their head as it goes along, I think would really help get, um, you know, get those early alerts on, Oh, if we had documentation for restarting this system, that would be a lot better than just, you know, either knowing or, Hey, the documentation's great, but if we could just have a chat command to restart, like things like that come up, I think a lot better when you have two people, um, Two more people, or like three people one one in an engineering discipline and one in an uh, infrastructure discipline. Yeah.
0: I mean, at the very least, you get the rubber duck benefits, and I think in this case, they have both memory and occasional thoughts. Yeah, um, is ombud, by the way, a word? Uh, like, I had never heard it not said as ombudsman. But it, is 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 ombudsman like the long version of the mo- of like the root ombud?
1: Um, it might be colloquial to say ombud, but that's the, ombudsman is the, is the word I'm referring to. Gotcha. Public advocate, I
0: think is the, is the alternate version I usually hear sort of outside of this context. But anyways, I mean, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And and so I assume you didn't do that based on this story.
1: No, because when we, when I joined the team initially, I actually had a colleague that I was working with. And so there were two of us. And so Mm. we felt... Uh, pretty like, oh, no, we're good because there's you and me, right? Um, But things change and that colleague didn't work on the project anymore. And so then it was just me and all of the, no, 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 it's okay. There's the two of us, you know, kind of all fell apart.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then at that point, I mean, that's not the time to make these changes because now you've got like the extra workload and the, right. the the stress of being on call more and and all that jazz. It's probably not the time to, to get the public advocate committee round up. Yeah
1: yeah totally and and i mean yeah it's uh i've had this happen a fair number of times uh not in not in github but just in my life and uh it's definitely i think mildly interesting like uh uh avdi grim had a great uh post recently i think or at least recently to me um that was basically like About getting back into a ruby project after six months did you see that
0: you know i saw i saw it recommended like and saw nuzzle say that people were reading it but no i did not read it
1: um i mean it's like and i think it
0: is new by the way i because i saw the links recently yeah
1: and i mean it's it's kind of like playing to the crowd a little bit (laughs) but it was it's basically like oh well i just wanted to you know come back to this project and start working on it. And oh man, it looks like bundler needs to be updated and oh geez, you know, it doesn't know my Ruby version anymore. All that sort of stuff. You know, um, I really
0: can't take those articles. Like, and I feel bad saying it and I'm going to, I wouldn't I
1: it was sort of playing to the crowd. I
0: wouldn't write this because I feel like it'd be flame worry, but you know, you can say it on a podcast because it's harder to share. I find those articles. So just baity. Oh, you know, like it's actually not, like, in other words, I don't really agree. I've come back to so many Ruby projects, like dozens and dozens of Ruby projects, it's not that hard, you know. <laughs> like it takes you, maybe it takes you two hours to to wrangle up all of the dependencies that changed. and maybe it takes you six hours if some test broke that you can't figure out. You know, like so maybe maybe it takes you some time. I hear you there, but uh, yeah, I don't know. This is like an oft-repeated criticism. Like Steve Klavnik made the same complaint a few months ago, and I did read that article, and it sounds like I had the same punchline as this one, and I just. I, I don't buy it. Like I don't buy that those guys actually have that much trouble with new projects. I think it's just, you know, it's not, it's not a complete, I I, want to, I want to take that back. I buy that. What they're saying is true. I think that, uh, it's easy to make a lot out of a couple hours of hassle. That's what I think.
1: Yeah, no. And and I, I completely agree with that. I mean, I've had this experience, but I think that at the same time, um, you know, for, the way I would look at this is like you know, whenever I had someone on board onto Hookshot, right? It was just another opportunity for me to either make the documentation better, or we're real big on like simple scripts at GitHub. So like, make script setup or script bootstrap a lot better. Um, like, those are two scripts that you should be able to go into in any GitHub project and get your environment where it needs to be, um, which is nice. Um, and somebody mentioned that in the in the article, and you know, and there was some conjecture about like, well, then that's just going to get bad or whatever. So I'm with you. I mean, I've, I haven't, I was only consulting for like a year and I imagine that it's a lot harder maybe in that environment where you're jumping from project to project very frequently maybe. But um, at least in my experience, it's like, I don't know that it's like bad enough in Ruby that you shouldn't come. But I think that it's one of those things that I do think, you know, making it easy for people to onboard onto a legacy project makes it a lot easier for them to come in and help you.
0: That's no doubt true.
1: So my point was more that like, yes, like these pains will be felt like you will try to start up and like, you know, there'll be an environment variable that you don't have set or whatever. So then, you know, like make a script that checks that it's set before it starts. So at least it's like, you need to have this set or whatever. Um, That was the big thing that we did is, you know, um, I had a coworker that needed to onboard hookshot because he just needed to interact with the system for his project, and he had a problem getting stuff going. And so he made a pull request to add foreman, and so that way it would start up all the services you needed, and blah 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 blah. You know, all that sort of stuff just made it so much easier to get right. you know, my whole team in. And so that was kind of my point with referring to this article: is but, yes, it's it's not exactly you know fairy dust or whatever, but I, I think that's also on the project itself.
0: And I think a punch, yeah, exactly. So I think a punchline. I think you hit the nail on the head there. Is is you sort of reap what you sow. So, I mean, the extent to which you don't make it easy on yourself to come back to a project, there's going to be some hassle. Um, I kind of feel like I need to defend Bundler a little bit and that the idea that Bundler would be a, a, a contributor to the difficulty of coming back to a project is sort of comical to me. Like, Bundler is the thing that makes it easy to come back to a project, right? It locks all the dependencies, you know, pretty... Uh, especially compared to some other programming languages that we may have some, uh, uh, that I may have to deal with pretty regularly. It's just, it's a pretty good story. The bundler story is really good. And to your point, yeah, you can have, it can be pretty difficult to come onto a project, especially if, uh, you've been away a bit and even more so if it's someone else's project. So you don't have like the context, but you know, you're, you're kind of going to get in what you put out. And if, if you come back and the project's hard, just make it easier this time. Then when we come back next time. It's going to be easier again. Yeah, totally. Uh, I should do the first ad to keep us on track. And it's perfectly, not planned at all, but perfectly aligned with this, which is it's uh, DigitalOcean. So, DigitalOcean provides simple and fast cloud hosting built for developers. Create a cloud server in 55 seconds and for as little as five bucks a month. Let me put on my glasses for the rest of this. <laughs> DigitalOcean is built for developers and used by over 400,000 of them including me on some uh, smaller projects, hopefully on something bigger sometime later this year. It's highly scalable to meet the demands of a rapidly growing application or business. You can even resize your droplets. That's uh, their name for your sort of containerized services or servers uh, to meet your needs as you grow. You can choose your OS, and they have one-click installs for uh, Ruby on Rails, Django, Docker, Drupal, etc., all servers are built on hex core machines. They have dedicated ECC RAM and RAID SSD storage, which I saw you had a fun set of tweets about, uh, Ugh. <laughs> which I won't even ask about.
1: I'm um, going to tell you when we're done Yeah, I'm angry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, servers can have up to 20 CPUs, 64 gigabytes of RAM, and 640 gigabytes of SSD hard drive space. They have fully featured uh, DNS management to make it easy to manage your domains. Uh, They have auto backups and snapshots, make it easy to clone. Super easy to get started. Go to the uh, website, that's digitalocean.com, like it sounds. And if you sign up, use the code rubypodcast, rubypodcast, and you'll get 10 bucks credit towards your new account. Thanks to DigitalOcean for supporting the show. All right, tell me.
1: So speaking of legacy projects, yeah, exactly. I have a gaming computer that sometimes remembers my name and allows me to play video games. Um, and I uh, was trying to set it up and use it on Friday. And it turns on and it's working fine. goes a little harky. And then I like restart it because I'm like, oh, this is weird. And then when it boots up, it says missing operating system. And so I've made a big mistake that my... Operations co-workers have no problem teasing me about mercilessly. I, when I bought the system four years ago, I bought two 128-gigabyte SSDs because a big SSD was too expensive for me, and so I bought the two smaller ones, and then I was like, oh, I'll just RAID 0 them together. Like, what could possibly go wrong? And so, if you're not familiar with the RAIDs, RAID 0 is where you use both disks to store data as though it were one disk, mm-hmm. so... If one disc goes, the whole kit and caboodle is uh, up a creek without a paddle. So, long story short, that's exactly what happened. One of my SSDs crapped the bed, and the other one's okay. And so I still am using that one temporarily until I can get a new thing. But the real reason I'm upset... So I had all my video games on a, on a regular hard drive. Because, um, you know, as this, games nowadays are like 30 or 40 gigabytes or whatever. And so... I put one game on the SSD and it was uh, Witcher 3, uh, which came out a couple months ago. And so this game is fabled to like be with like a good playthrough somewhere between 100 and 200 hours, which is a lot of hours. Yeah,
0: right. Well, how many hours in were you?
1: So I was only like 15 hours in, but that took me like two and a half months or something. (laughs) So I was like... Because, I mean, I'm, you know, I got a kid and everything, and I can only play at night, and I can only play for an hour or two. And so it took me a very long time to get those 15 hours uh, with travel and everything. And so when I lost that, I was so distraught. Now,
0: will you replay, or is it, is this, oh, yeah, is I've this the started. end for Witcher's no, 3? No,
1: I've already started. It's two, it's a really, I think it's a really good game. It has, it has its flaws for sure, but uh, it's a really good story based game. And so I've, I've restarted playing, and luckily, the game is so complex, like the story is at least, it's a very mature, like, story that, I I don't find myself, like, that pained playing through it. Because most video games, to replay it, it, like, pull, pulls my soul out. You know, it's just it gets so angry because <laughs> I know exactly what they're going to say, what they're going to do. This game is so branchy and everything. It's, it's pretty simple to replay so far. But the long and short of it, and the only reason I'm getting into it on this podcast, is back your crap up, please. Even that computer that you're like, it doesn't matter what's on there because it doesn't matter. Just back it up, for God's sake, because... If I could only have backed up my uh, video game saves, this nerd would be a lot happier right Right. now. Yeah, I feel like there's a benefit of
0: getting older back to your replay story, which is my memory is, you know, I don't think it was ever great. And it's probably worse now than it's ever been. So I could easily replay a game and like it probably the same as I did the first time.
1: That's exactly where I'm at. I'm like, I I did play this, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So...
0: Okay, so uh, your first recommendation for an ombud uh, or public advocate for the team being one of your first acts as uh, the new responsible party for a legacy project of less attention than some, I think is a really good uh, tip. So let me see if you've got a second really good tip. What else would you do?
1: Um, so I would also fight against the idea that there's ever a good time to onboard someone new onto a project like this. Um, I think we've wait we waited a very long time to like, when it, we wouldn't be sort of interrupting the critical path, you know? And, uh, you know, I have a coworker who says frequently, basically, you know, I forget the exact phrase. So if, if you're listening, I apologize, <laughs> but basically, you know, you keep, if everything's important, nothing's important. And so to oh, yeah. me... To me, it's like well, you either acknowledge that this system can go down and, you know, it could not – and Kyle could be on vacation and we might not be able to get it up for hours, right? Or you acknowledge that, okay, we're just going to have to bite the bullet. We're all going to have to jump in and get it done. And so that's kind of where we ended up is we just sort of realized, yes, we have this big, you know, important roadmap type project that we're working on, but we're, we're never really going to be able to, um, you know – find the right time to stop and work on this other legacy system. If it's important enough that you need to increase the bus factor and have more people know how it's working, then do that and do it now,
0: you know? Well, and I mean, I think that, uh, it's easy to underestimate the value of a half hour, an hour, two hours of introduction now and then like, in other words, like it's not the, the choice isn't between not at all and the perfect red carpet, you know trumpets and and uh streamers introduction like you can kind of get somewhere in the middle there and you're probably better off early because at least then you're on the path towards figuring it out
1: yeah and i mean just it's like it's like uh whenever anyone tells you to go learn vim i mean acknowledge that those first few excuse me those first few hours or days or whatever sort of measurement of time makes sense for the project are, are gonna be painful and not productive like in the short term right in the long term it's going to have amazing benefits but in the short term you know you're going to learn this new thing and this new set of skills and you might not actually have any code for three four days or whatever whatever the number is you know um i think just saying that that's okay is it would be a huge benefit to whoever you're um you know enticing to come on and work on this project with you
0: okay so tip one ombud. tip two no time like the present do you have a third tip I mean, I feel like I have no choice now, right? It's kind of a rule of, a rule of communication. You've got to come up with the third.
1: Um, I mean, the, the one thing that I did when I joined on the project, which may or may not be applicable to you um, all, uh, is um, I added a ton of graphing. Um, And so graphing could be equated to logging, but the main thing is, is how do I make sure that as I'm onboarding these people who are very afraid of this old, gross system, how do I give them the confidence that their changes aren't negatively impacting things? And so we use Graphite Atonic GitHub. And so one of the things I did was I basically built a dashboard of Hookshot. Basically, like, here are all the pertinent graphs, and they're, they're categorized by, you know, sort of the activity at hand. So one is, like, an overall deliverability. One is, like, the queuing system. One is contacting third parties and whatever. And so if you make a deploy or you make a change, it'd be very, very quick and simple for you to see, not just on an error level, which has some useful data, but this can show me that, oh, while my change shows no errors, it actually increased the amount of time it would take to get from github.com to the third party by like an order of magnitude, right? That would be a very easy thing to see through the graph as well as to see, you know, maybe all the hooks are getting over to Hookshop, but they're not actually going up to third parties very quickly. Um, and so that graphing probably took me maybe two or three days to get in and, you know, to build a dashboard, but it's probably the number one thing that's letting me show my coworkers like... Modesty horn. What? Oh, because of the two
0: or three days. Oh, I just whipped up a, just an enterprise monitoring dashboard in two or three days. no, 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 no. No big, no big.
1: No, no, no. So to be clear, right, like <laughs> GitHub's infrastructure already has all the graphing in place, right? And so it's I can create graphs um, using someone else's code. There's a dashboard app, which is just a Heroku app that pulls graphs out of this, you know, out of Graphite basically and puts it up there. So, but the, my point of time with the two to three days is just saying, you know, uh, time that hurts, but less than a week, you know, uh, amount of work uh, was what it took. And I think that it's paying off in dividends now, um, even though at the time it was probably it did not look like the most important thing I could be doing right then. You know, Um, I think, I I think that's a great,
0: it's a great suggestion. I mean that, that for something that has, is pretty mission critical to increase visibility to it. uh, So that anyone that's involved has some sort of idea of what's going on, given that most of it's invisible. seems like a great idea to me. Yeah. Well, that's good advice. Mr. Daigle. Hey man. Add an ombud, uh, no time like the present, increase visibility. Your three, you know, profit. That's number yep. four.
1: Profit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to get a tattoo with that, I think. Uh-huh.
0: Okay. Uh huh. Okay. That was a good topic. Uh, let's wrap it up with our, our weekly code ship read and then get on to topic two. What do you say? Awesome. Code ship's a uh, hosted continuous delivery service uh, and frequent recipient of. Uh, hookshot sent messages, <laughs> very frequent. I, I, you probably can't say, but I've got a feeling that the volume of communication between GitHub and services like CodeShip has got to be spectacularly high.
1: It is quite high.
0: Huh. We should, uh, we should come back on a different show to talk about, uh, sort of what it's like to work in a project when milliseconds matter more.
1: <laughs> sure.
0: Because that's a fun topic that I think, uh, some people, that's all they think about all day. I mean, there's, there's that expression that says, uh, you know, uh, if you want to work on new features, then join something new. If you want to work on scaling, join something old. And, uh, many people listening, I think get to work on new features and wonder about the scaling and those that work on the scaling, uh, often want to hear other people talk about it. So. Anyhow, back to, back to Codeship. You can set up a continuous integration in a matter of seconds and automatically deploy when your tests have passed. Codeship supports your GitHub and Bitbucket projects. You can get started with their free plan today. And they just launched organizations, which is sort of like GitHub's organizations, but for the uh, Codeship context, you can create teams, set permissions for specific team members, and improve collaboration in your continuous delivery workflow. If you visit codeship.com slash five by five Ruby, you'll save 20% off any premium plan for the next three months. If you use the code five by five Ruby. So again, go to codeship.com slash five by five Ruby, go to uh, or just enter five by five Ruby as your code. You'll get 20% off for three months and they have partnered with me very nicely to promote the uh, API first training. You can get 20% off, uh, Thanks to me and them. If you use the cur- the uh, code CodeShip at uh, API First Training, so thanks to CodeShip yet again for sponsoring the show. Okay. All right. So, shall we move on to our second topic of the day?
1: Yeah, go for it.
0: So, uh, let's talk about Rails engines. I asked on Twitter about people's interest in this topic and it turns out a lot of people are interested for for a variety of reasons I'd say that there are a few camps uh, and, and for those that don't know I would think most people listening to the show would know but a rails engine is a uh, it's another rails project that can be mounted inside of a second rails project so the one that people uh, used to talk about a lot and I think people still use but I don't hear it mentioned much anymore is rails admin, which is an engine that you can use to kind of have like a, like a admin crud on your models available to kind of quick hack at the data without going to the console or rigging something up yourself. A lot of people know about that engine, but but the basic idea is you build a rails app that is meant to be installed or mounted inside of another rails app. Uh, the idea being that there there are some types of functionality that, is, that are very common and can be extracted into their own deal that aren't gems in the sort of traditional Ruby gem sense, but they're sort of more than that. They're gems that are Rails projects that then can uh, uh, be integrated into sort of the master Rails project. So that's what engines are. Anyways, so the, the interest ran the gamut from people that clearly were using engines that wanted to hear chatter about it to people that don't, that are interested in learning more to people that like the idea that haven't had success or people that have opinions pains that they're bad so that there seems to be a lot of different chatter about it. Um, but, uh, quite a bit of interest. So what's your, what's your experience with engines? If any,
1: um, I mean, I've never shipped an engine or added an engine into an app that went out to production. Um, I mean, there could be a s- sort of an argument that the API is kind of engine-y at GitHub, but, um, I don't know that I've ever had a scenario where the engine was a clear win, you know, the meaning having it be completely separate, um, but also, you know, sort of mounted and attached to the main application. So, I mean, I'm intrigued, but I've never... I'll be the noob that's asking all the questions. All
0: right. So let me describe the one that I wrote this, this last week or two. And cause I, I've written a couple others. I think one that was a pretty good success. One that was, that's in production in an app. One that I did as an engine because the, the app itself was difficult to work with. And I thought that I think I was right on this, that I could more quickly develop if I basically stubbed the app, interface into that old app and built something new that then I could just plug in later. Um, which isn't a great, great reason in general to use an engine, but it sort of worked well there, but, but let's fast forward to now. So I was talking about fancy hands the last couple weeks. Yep. And, um, so, so, uh, for those that missed it, fancy hands is sort of like a Amazon mechanical Turk, but with, um, American based labor that can also make phone calls and is a bit that's basically the deal that that I've been using on a, um, project and they have an API. So you can integrate your app with their service to say, you know, please do that this task and give me back that data. And I'm willing to pay X and here are the parameters around the acceptable time window it can happen, etc. And so they have an API that's pretty good. Um, you know, we talked on previous episodes about some of the ups and downs, but it's, it's, it's with with some bumps, but pretty good, and the features are are quite nice. But it's a little bit of a pain to work with in an app for uh, a couple reasons. So one, you need to be able, in most cases, to persist the request that you made on your side, I, um, or at least I did. So in other words, I couldn't. Um, I, I, I had to know what I had sent to fancy hand or I had, I had to know what the sort of nature of the request was for various purposes, say like reporting and, and, uh, not just reporting for various reasons. I needed to know what, what tasks had been queued, which ones were done, which ones weren't done, etc. And using their API to fetch that data completely does not, that would not work. Like it needs to be sort of a, so you're
1: holding a lot of state on your side.
0: Yeah, absolutely yeah right. and if you didn't if you depended on the state being on their side if I did that it would have been a major problem right because i can't <laughs> i can't i can't query it uh uh it's uh like referential integrity to the other objects that it does have relationships with would be jacked up like it just wouldn't work so i mean it, i think that that issue really the querying plus the reference to the the sort of related objects were two deal breakers, so I had to keep the state. Well, once you do that, then the gems that are already built to interact with Fancy Hands aren't really, um, you know, they don't solve that for you. They just sort of make a nice DSL in Ruby to chat with the server, but they don't they don't solve the sort of persistence problem. And then with the persistence problem, you have the va- the problem around sort of validation of the objects and making sure that the thing that you want to create is is you know creatable because the extent to which you can sort of prevent there being this sort of like two-step create the persisted record on the app side and then validate that it's right. And then sort of have these, you know, you it would need, I think various states of the sort of life cycle of that request that would c- kind of confuse. Uh, I, I think it would make it somewhat confusing to use the API. If the, uh, uh, if the, instances of the customer request to fancy hands didn't sort of understand if they should be valid in the first place. Okay. Okay. So, th- so that's sort of like the persistent story, bit of a pain, um, to deal with because every crack you have in that story, you're going to pay for it. And I did cause I, I implemented this once a different way and
1: regretted it. So, so far, if I'm understanding, I mean the, the, a, a big, a big arrow towards rails engines thus far is that, I need to – I can't rely on this service to know what what I would need to actually use that service. And so thus, if anyone were to use this system, say, just as a gem that calls the API, they would also have to solve this problem of storing state. And so why not yes. you know, make this a Rails engine because yeah. then we could do it that way.
0: Yeah, and in my case, I, I wrote it as an engine at first or I decided to because I had at least two needs in two different apps to interface with fancy hands. And I said, oh man, I'm going to have to redo this entire thing. I'm going to have to you know, basically just fork the code over, you know, copy the code over, which seemed ugly. So reason one is this whole persistence story. And that's very much a, a Rails engine idea, right? Because it, you know, once you're into persistence, then, then Rails' yeah, exactly value like proposition becomes interesting. Okay. So reason two, and this is interesting given the webhook conversation we just had, is that most of the communication with uh fancy well okay i'm going to switch the order reason 2 is is then the dealing with the fancy hands uh uh api and then ideally you're going to push that off into a background job right cuz f- for all the obvious reasons well again this is a rails sort of railsy idea you know uh, uh what yeah. what, ha- what if i need to manage a queue of things and the actual, so I'm going to open source this library. And I think that the code on how to do this bit was interesting, but I made the engine. So it does it synchronously, but has a very, very easy way to swap in a worker to do it async if you wanted to. Okay. Um, so that was the second reason I think uh, less important than the persistence, uh, on the core records, but still important to sort of manage the queue of work. And then the third one, which is super critical is the communication back from fancy hands is primarily through webhooks?
1: Interesting. Okay.
0: Right. So th- the idea is I create the custom request. I get back a response, which is just basically an acknowledgement that I've asked them to do work and um, ID for me to refer to that later. And if there are errors or whatever, then I'd find out then. And then from then on, Uh, they stream for every single sort of type of update that happens to the request, whether it's a message or the thing gets closed or whatever, right? They stream to a, an endpoint, uh, that you provide in a webhook. They stream these posts and, uh, you know, you have to deal with them. So that is a pain (laughs) because like for, for some interesting reasons, like, um, they do not, so they have multiple types of, um, fancy hands requests that you can create, right? So you can do a custom request or a standard request or a, or an outbound call. They have, you know, a bunch of proper nouns for the types of requests and they're all a little bit different, but they all hit the same webhook endpoint back to you. Mm, okay. So you kind of have right. to first say, all right, you know, you have, you have to sort of dispatch the inbound webhooks, Like we you know what is this thing? you know, which class does it get associated with in case you have multiple types of requests and then update the, like in my case, the custom request, I have to take every one of those responses and push them onto the end of array of responses and do some extra parsing on those responses to update some sort of top level attributes of the request. Uh, that's a pain, to, that's a pain to write. I mean, not like it's really difficult, but it's quite a bit of spelunking to understand like, what are these responses going to look like? And, um, is my endpoint going to handle them correctly? And then what about, uh, the fact that they're, the uh, you know, polymorphic sort of, at least in the way that they handle webhooks. Um, so that is an obvious need for an engine, right? Because it, with an engine, you can just say, Hey, mount, uh, the engine that I made is called taskmaster. So mount this engine at slash Taskmaster. And then I can go to Fancy Hands and say, "Okay, the webhook is myurl.com/taskmaster/webhooks," slash and then it will automatically be able to handle anything inbound. Um, so those are my like three use reasons that I decided to go uh, engine, and like so far, pretty great. Like it really, is, yeah. it's really excellent.
1: I was gonna say so, like I mean, thus far it's great what have you run into anything that made you either wonder if the engines was the way to go or that there was this big downside to the engine itself like meaning you know you're implementing it as best you can but there's this big you know sort of asterisk around rails engines in general is there anything that you know while you were doing this um wasn't just uh you know a slam dunk.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think that one of the questions that you consistently have to deal with when building an engine is like managing the seam between the engine and its host app. So I'll give a couple of examples. So, uh, the customer request class in taskmaster, um, it has a, a polymorphic belongs to relationship. Uh, to the thing that's requesting it. Cause usually the way at least the way that I've built some apps that use it is I have a class that's sort of in the domain of the main app, right? So I'll call it like my custom request. And then that thing holds the business logic from that app around the customer request. And then, y- you know, you don't want to sort of infect the fancy hand side with that. You want to like have it convert into the fancy hands world, what it needs. But you want the custom request to fancy hands to understand, you know, what the instance was in the the host uh, uh, application that it's related to. So, like, the reasoning about that, like, how much do I put, you know, how do I allow them to know about each other in the most narrow way possible?
1: And is it, that a hostile relationship? Like, do you perceive, like, uh, granted it's open source, but my point is, like how uncomfortable are you with that line being blurry? You know, hasn't been so far on this one, but I think
0: I I definitely could imagine it being blurry. Yeah. Um, it hasn't been on this one though. It's been fine. Okay. Um, I think that there is, um, for the uninitiated to rails engines, there's a little bit of a learning curve around how to like inject things into the engine in a way that feels comfortable. Like, so, and you know, if you've been a Ruby programmer, even for a little while, none of this would feel all that foreign, but you have to do things like it, uh, I'll give an example for the app I was just working on. So in the, in the host app, I wanted to inject callbacks into the custom request, uh, meth- or class, uh, to say, okay, after commit on the custom request, this is in the fancy hands engine or the taskmaster engine after commit on that, I want you to call this method on, uh, or send this method to your, you know, the, the belongs to that represents the bridge between you and the host app. So like, that's obviously not a big deal, right? You can just inside of the class in your app, uh, have like a class eval and taskmaster to just inject that behavior into it. But if you're not, if you're un, if you're sort of not that familiar with doing that sort of work, it feels a little dirty. Um, not that I actually think it is. I don't think it is at all. Like, I think it's fine to say, okay, class eval this into the taskmaster class and, and, you know, squirt this behavior in. But then, you know, I think that someone could reasonably complain that that is making it a little less clear how things are working. Now I'd argue from the way I just wrote it, that, that it, Uh, it's actually in that bridge class that you want to see that logic like in my host apps class that is using the taskmaster customer request to fulfill its actual sort of manual manual labor needs that that's where I should put the code that is changing the behavior of taskmasters customer request to sort of fit its needs. But you know, again, it's a little, it's a little weird.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, that's always been one of the things that's been, like, odd to me about Rails engines is, you know, the idea that we're, we're always trying to keep these things, like, with clear, sort of defined APIs and whatnot, which, like, gems generally accomplish just because of the way that they're built. But I feel like with Rails engines, there is this sort of, um, like, part of the contract is that you're allowing this thing to be mounted inside your application, and thus it is going to, ha- like, have to... I guess not have to, but probably sort of reach into at least one class, if not more, uh, you know, with your permission, but uh, it's going to reach in to do whatever it needs to do to sort of be the glue between the two systems. Whereas normally with gems, right, you're you're adding that in uh, manually, and so it's less – maybe it feels less gross or something, but the end result is probably very, very close to being the same.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, it's a little unclear to me why – people often think it's a little bit gross because I I think you're right. That like the reaction you just said, I think is common and I don't know completely fair because I don't know that it's all that different than, uh, many things we do with the gems to configure them. But like, I just pasted, I'm not sure if you're in Slack right now, but I just pasted the, uh, uh, the code that sort of injects the after commit behavior into that class. While Kyle reviews my code that I just pasted into Slack, let me tell you a bit more about our third sponsor, Braintree. Braintree is code for easy online payments. If you're building a mobile app and searching for a simple payments solution, check out Braintree. The Braintree V.0 SDK makes it easy to offer multiple mobile payment types. You can start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, credit cards, and more, all with a single integration. They have uh, single secure payments. Again, it only takes a little bit of time to integrate Braintree into your app. Um, They have uh, SDKs in seven languages, .NET, Node, Java, Perl, PHP, Python, and Ruby. And they uh, support Android, iOS, and JavaScript clients if you're working on any of those. Uh, All of their code is, uh, idiomatic with clear documentation. And, uh, in 10 lines of code, you've got, uh, the beginnings of your integration with Braintree. So to learn more about Braintree payments, go to braintreepayments.com slash rails podcast. When you do, uh, they've got a great deal for your first $50,000 in transactions. It's totally free, free. Uh, again, braintreepayments.com slash rails podcast. I thank them for sponsoring yet again. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know. It feels fine. You know, basically it's like, Hey, after this thing commits, then schedule a retry on a thing. If, if you should, you know, and it's, there's nothing fancy that could, but, um, so b- back to your question about like what was difficult. So I think, you have to think carefully about where the seam is, um, for sure. I think that there's a little bit of friction when you develop an engine around when you're in, when you're actually going to mount it into the host app. Cause like for a while, it feels like you're in, in the clear, <laughs> You're like, oh man, I've got this nice isolated project. It's 400 lines of code. It's perfectly tested. It's like lightning. F- Everything's great. You know, it's roses. And then you finish it and then you're like, okay, now I need to actually mount it into that application that I extracted it out of. And then there's going to be some friction. One, you've got to be familiar with like how to deal with uh, yeah, installing it locally. And then you've got to install the migrations over and then inevitably you'll realize that things should have changed. And then you change the, you know, the class name, you know, like things change, right? And then you have to deal with a lot more friction than you would if it was all one project for a little bit. You know, while, because like, it's not just like you're opening up this different file, you're actually going to this other project and depending on how it's being developed, you know, maybe you're using GitHub to pull the, you know, pull a branch from a private repo and just, there's a little, there's a little, little friction. And so as part that.
1: of that friction, do you have to, or are you like, do you write a sort of integration test that spins up a fake app or something that gets the rails engine mounted into it? Or do you, Oh yeah, yeah, test, yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's how engines, I actually think the testing story with engines is great. So the way that engines are tested is that you, and you know, cause they're not as popular as I think people imagined they would be. The documentation on this can be a little shaky, but, um, But anyhow, the way that it works is that you generate kind of a a, a Rails project inside of the spec directory of the engine, and then the engine gets mounted into that project. Okay. So then when you test it, you you test the combination of the engine directly, like, you know, unit testing the engine directly, and then unit and any other sort of uh, tests, integration, whatever, uh, request tests on the dummy app. That's what they call it. The test app that your engine gets mounted into inside the spec folder. Um, which is really nice, right? Cause then it, it, again, there's a little bit of friction of getting like understanding this. Cause now you've got like uh, a library that has sort of two rails apps in it, which is a little weird when you're first working on it. Um, but it, 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 the story ends up being pretty good because you can run the tests in your engine and test it directly. Plus it in the context of something that it's mounted into so that your fear of it being any different when you mount it into your ultimate app is pretty low. Like it worked exactly as I thought it would because the test setup is pretty darn similar. It was the same version of rails.
1: Right. So your report back once this is shipped so we can all, I will size your code immensely. <laughs> I
0: will. Yeah. Let's let here, I will take a quick look here at how, how much code it is. Um, It is pretty, it's pretty skinny still. So I think that the, I mean, hey, people, I actually heard a pretty good story about this, that it's the short um, code reviews that are the most critical. Because (laughs) it's easier to look at. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Once you've got a lot of code. People
1: (laughs) be lazy.
0: (laughs) Yep. Yeah. So I'll open source this maybe as soon as tonight. Uh, Now I've only implemented one of the primary, uh, fancy hands request types in the engine. I've, I've implemented another one outside the engine, but I haven't moved it over to the engine yet. Um, but I decided that I wouldn't implement anything that I wasn't using in production right now. Um, yeah, that's a good call. Yeah. And, uh, as I either do the other ones or I'm happy to expand it to include the other types of requests as other people are using it. You know, like I'll collaborate on it cause I'm, yeah. I'm pretty familiar with how the whole thing works, but, um, yeah, so I'll open source it either tonight or maybe tomorrow, but I think tonight, um, it'll be called Taskmaster, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's, I think it's pretty good. Awesome. My, uh, my, uh, two other, uh, there's a one minute comment. My two other engines that I've made that I that I had some success with, or I think the one I had the most success with, was a geography engine. So I kept on building apps again and again because I do most of my work in transportation that needed to have robust geography models, right? So like the whole U.S. geography hierarchy, like you know from you know all the way through postal code up to. Um, the various ways that the U S government categorizes the sort of collections of postal codes into the metropolitan regions and CBSAs, et cetera, up to States and regions and country, et cetera. I kept having to do that. So I wrote a geography engine that sort of would just plug in all the classes that were related to ge- geography, um, plus all of the t- rake tasks that would update those classes with data from the various classes government and other data sources that would keep them live you know fresh that was a pretty good use case for engines i thought yeah uh you don't sound that interested in them though
1: uh i just had never run into a case where i feel like they would i don't know i yeah i mean i'm sure that they're very helpful i just have never had a case where i've seriously considered using them you know um so I'm I'm curious to read the code though because I think that the one thing that's super interesting about your scenario is that the state that is required to use your your app is not application state, right? It's not domain state for the application. Really, it's really like state for the interaction with this third party. Your application will hold its like domain state still, regardless. But like the I I, fi- I find it interesting that there's like you know did we call out for this and all that sort of stuff is something that would, to me, make sense as a Rails engine because, you know, the integration itself needs to hold some level of state. Um, whereas with a gem, like, I don't... You'd have to be like, okay, now go build this model or, like, add this field in this model, like, paperclip day, right? Where i would be like, go do all this stuff in in your app and then just connect the gem and you'll be good. But instead you're saying, you know, no, no, just install this Rails engine, run this command, and you'll be good to go. Um
0: yeah, because that's where the vast majority of the work is. They have a gem that right, allows, right, right. That, that helps with the chatter, and that's like five percent of the work, or yeah, maybe twenty yeah. percent of the work. But
1: yeah, and I, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I I think your case, may, I think your your you know use makes a very good case for it. I just don't know that I've I've personally run into it. Uh, and, and to be clear, this isn't like some like veiled straw man situation where I'm like, I don't think Rails engines should exist. I just don't think that I've me actually. Uh, have been on a project where maybe it would have made sense um but who knows in the future maybe maybe i will i think that the um so my final thought on this i think the webhooks
0: uh bullet point from my list is a really good reason to use an engine because yeah. um i don't know if this has been your experience but webhooks are hard to test um, oh yeah right because like you have to have something to fire the requests off or know or know what they're going to be you know so you can stub them and for a lot of projects that really increases anxiety and probably jacks up the code and um i had to go through the process of figuring out what the heck all these requests were going or responses were going or i'm sorry requests to the webhook were going to look like and then like saving those as example uh, requests etc and man that's really nice to not have to go through again yeah yeah um, you know not to mention just like uh, n- not that it's difficult to set up the controllers and how they should handle things. Cause it's really not, but it's nice to not have to sweat it. Given, given that the testing story is a little bit of a pain, especially if you're a little less familiar with how to do it.
1: Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And I know that comes up a lot, uh, with my normal work, just testing that stuff's a pain. So I could see that being a huge, a huge win.
0: Do you have a story on that? Like a, like a, this thing will fire example web hooks off at you just, you know, hit this button.
1: Not really. Um, the developer site has an example payload for every single uh, event that can come, and so we basically just tell people go copy that and use it as a fixture. Um, and so, if they need to have a particular state, they can they can trigger one and, and you know capture that fixture or just edit the example we have. But um, but we don't have a good story on like, an, like a sandbox e type of you know infrastructure or anything like. Does that. your
0: CI server generate the example?
1: Uh, Uh, requests no um i but i wrote a little ruby project that goes through and does one of everything basically yeah okay um and then we capture that and use it in the documentation so you could hook that up into your ci if you wanted to
0: yeah yeah we could uh all right well our two topics were uh interestingly connected i think hmm indubitably (laughs) okay uh we close the show with uh uh, wonderful things said about our wives so sir don't let jamie down she listens <laughs> she she has not given up because she is waiting she's counting counting the minutes of this episode but see,
1: you know what i'm not sure that she listened to the last episode or maybe she bailed before we said anything because she did not mention the specific call out so you know, I feel like uh'm not sure <laughs> this
0: that is not the reason to continue to do it Kyle <laughs> well, I'm gonna say then, so uh my wife is not given birth, but i and on Tuesday at eleven thirty in the morning is uh when it's scheduled if it does not happen between now and then, so oh boy, I have been amazed by her uh nine months with the twins and she has had a very rough go of it and has gutted it out. And I think is, is feeling, um, I think she's seeing light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. And, uh, so I am rooting for her this week and, uh, I'm very impressed by her journey so far. So that's awesome. Love you, Teresa.
1: We're excited for you, Teresa. Sean a little bit, but mainly for <laughs> I really I
0: deserve very little of the excitement, <laughs> relatively speaking.
1: Yeah, and so I guess I'll, I will preemptively shout out my wife for uh, preparing uh, for what shall be the busiest September and October of my life. Uh, I shall be traveling quite quite a fair amount. Oh boy! Yeah, so
0: to uh, to follow me on twitter or github or wherever i'm barely known kyle
1: and i am k daigle all
0: right now can people connect with you to play video games is that a thing
1: uh yes follow me on twitter uh i actually uh, regularly tweet out when i'm looking for people to play video games with me so if you play destiny follow me on twitter we're looking to fill out a uh a group on tuesday night squad Let's do it. All right. All right.
0: So until next time.
1: Yeah. Whenever that is, man, babies. Ah, we'll, we'll find, we'll find a little bit of time. (laughs) (laughs) Adios. All right.